This week on Alternative Fund Insight, I am joined by Jean-Philippe Bouchot, co-founder of $10 billion firm Capital Fund Management, renowned academic and a pioneer in quantitative finance. My name is Will Wainwright and this is AFI, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. Thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoy the episode, please leave a written review on your chosen platform and remember to visit alternativefundinsight.com, follow us on LinkedIn and sign up to our free email, offering a weekly roundup, breaking news and fresh analysis, helping you navigate hedge funds and private markets. Our most read articles last week explored the rise of Singapore as a hedge fund hub and analysed the performance of the industry in November. The last episode of AFI, in which Cheney Capital co-founder Stuart Fiat discussed his firm's move to private credit and the 2023 outlook, was the most listened to so far. If you are new to AFI, do catch up on all previous episodes featuring the likes of ex-Renaissance quant David Magerman and Wall Street personality Anthony Scaramucci. But first, to today's fascinating conversation with Jean-Philippe Bouchot co-founder and now chairman of Paris-based quant firm CFM. We discussed the firm's growth to its current record asset size, its strategy, the strong performance of Systematic this year, and his academic research areas of interest. I started by asking for an update on CFM's strategy and size. So CFM is a quant firm, so we're covering a lot of different quant strategies from uh, traditional strategies on futures and setup to more sophisticated strategies on uh, single stock uh, option markets. Um, so we're overall a firm managing around 10 billion, eight of them being in our flag, flagship fund, uh, Stratus. And Stratus, the, the flagship that kind of invests in your underlying strategies, is that right? Yes, exactly. Stratus is itself a multi-strategy fund investing in uh, all the, the strategies I mentioned above, that is uh, futures, equities, uh, options, credit. It's been an excellent year for Systematic in 2022, Stratus being no exception. Why has it been such a good year? What have been, what have been the main drivers? Well, you know, as quant, um, I have no good answer because if I had a good answer, it would be already a model. But um you know, we know that strategies uh, have good years and bad years. This is what backtests are about. So we know that years like this one happened in the past and can happen in the future, and there can be bad years in a backtest as well. So um, we know that the strategy, the overall strategy of, of quants uh, is not a straight line. Um, <laughs> there are good times and bad times, and we have to accept it on a statistical basis. Of course, it's not a very satisfying answer because we would really like to know why some years or some periods are good and others not and it is true that there's something to understand because um you know there's something that we've noticed for a long time already is that there's something like a quant mode in the sense that it's not that quants in general do good it's also that all the sub quant strategies that we have 
tend to do good simultaneously. So there seems to be what I interpret, but again, it's more an interpretation than a, a, a hard proof. Um, I would call it this year some kind of discombobulation, uh, which yeah, I find it, find this word fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what quants are good at, at doing is um, identifying times where Uh, behavioral biases of all sorts, you know, kind of irrational reactions, mispricing, if you will, are um, more uh, obvious than others, than, than other times. And I think that um, a year like this one, when there's a lot happening, means that a lot of um, actors in the financial markets are, are maybe overreacting or underreacting in all sorts of ways. And this is in general, good for quant strategies. But of course, mm -hmm. you know, this is a little frustrating as an answer, I guess, because uh, I would really like to come up with uh, a definite indicator showing this. And the best indicator that we have is performance itself, which is a kind of chicken and egg problem. I guess the most obvious example of the strong performance in systematic has been in trend following. Yes. And we've had you know, really big moves in uh, bond markets in currencies and other asset classes. Uh, trend following strategies have been able to, to capture these moves really quite effectively. So that's one big driver. Yes, of course. And but I think that the, the mistake would be that all the quant strategies are driven by this trend following or momentum factor. This is not the case at all. And um, we know that trend following is a good strategy. We've written paper about this. Uh, we've always you know, defended the idea that trend following is, in a sense, something that you have to have in your portfolio anyway, because on 200 years, 300 years, it's always been there. You know, it's always been declared dead to be revived later. So this is a very strong behavioral bias, in my view, that's ingrained in, in human nature and that will not disappear. So there are good years for trend following. There are uh, not as good years as, as this one, of course. It com comes and goes. But the point I was trying to make earlier is that this is you know, one among other behavioral biases that then can express themselves. And uh, mm -hmm. in our Stratus Fund, and in particular in the Futures Fund, Discus, uh, we've seen, uh, of course, performance coming from trend following, but uh, we have many other strategies that have nothing to do with trend following and that contributed uh, to the performance as much as trend following. So it's not that the whole performance mm -hmm. of CFM is driven by trend following, far from that. So does this feed into your wider theory of discombobulation? And is that another way of expressing the, the big regime shifts that we've seen this year? Yes, coming out of the the you know the the pandemic and quantitative easing, there have been these huge changes now, I agree. and it's systematic strategies that have been able to profit. Yes, it's not to say that uh, rotations of this kind, regime shifts, are always good for uh, quant strategies. I mean, they can also these quant strategies can be taken wrong-footed by a sudden mood shifts like uh, for example uh, the day where Pfizer announced uh, their vaccine then it was uh, pretty bad for a lot of uh, quant strategies so it's not that volatility or unexpected rotations are always good but I think that um, in a sense if 
these regime shifts are spread out over longer periods, if there's some kind of radical uncertainty, uh, so to say, that is uh, is expressing itself, because at the moment there's so many bifurcations ahead. You know, uh, for example, we've seen uh, a few days ago uh, the inflation uh, figure in the U.S. being 0.2 better than than um, anticipated. That is 7.7 instead of 7.8 on an extremely noisy measure. I mean, you know, monthly inflation is extremely noisy, mm. but the, the U.S. market went up by five percent, which means that all the, the the whole financial market is is a kind of a string under intense tension, and anything can make it go one direction or the other. And I think these these situations are can be good for, I'm not saying they're necessarily good, but these kind of accumulated tensions um, in all directions can be can be good for quant strategies. You started CFM in 1994. There's been a lot of talk about how exceptional a year 2022 has been. So I'm wondering, even after running the firm for 28 years, has have the events of this year made you consider changes to your strategy and taking CFM forward in a different way? Not at all. Um, quite on the contrary. I think that uh, this year has also been an, a vindication of many efforts we've put in improving our strategies um, in the last five years, You know, mm-hmm. adopting a, a lot of uh, the new tools that became available for, for quants, a lot of new data that became available for quants. Uh, hiring aggressively uh, talents. I think that really in the end, um, being an investor in general, but a, a quant in particular, means uh, piling up as many sources of, inf- of information and as many ways to treat that information as possible. And um, and so in a way, it's a little bit accidental that, that 2022 is good in general for quants and good for CFM. But I think that part of the reason it's good for CFM is also because of the way that uh, we actually decided to uh, double down on our uh, model, on our model that's been around for 30 years. You may have seen that AQR put out a paper recently on trend following, and I don't want to dwell too much on trend, but they were making the point that you know, the market environment should suit trend and macro strategies quite well over the next few months and years. Do you think that kind of forecast can be made? Maybe with with a low statistical significance, you can uh, make statements of that kind, that, that there are uh, environments that are more, um, say, positively correlated with uh, uh, simple strategies. But my view is that, you know, you should, you, it's like holding the market. I mean, we know that the stock market is going up on average. And so any reasonable person should have uh, some equity market in its in his or her portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is with trend following. I think this thing is going up on average. It's very difficult to time. And I would not recommend trying to time it. But having trend following as something that is uh, persistently in any portfolio, for me, makes a lot of sense. I wanted to ask you about crypto. We had the collapse of FTX earlier in November. 
Has CFM looked into the crypto industry and building exposure there or not? Well, we've looked into, of course, how the crypto world, um, uh, well, how the technology works, for example, and and how it develops. Um, but only to say that this was not for us, at least at this stage. I mean, there's, we've been saying for many months now that there there is a huge embedded risk in in, in cryptos, and uh, you know it's not to boast about saying uh, we've told you so, but. Uh, we were expecting and we're still expecting some kind of uh, major event that that for us you know, is unacceptable in our portfolios. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we don't want to you know, be caught red-handed in, with uh, this type of huge risk, huge, I think, objectively anticipable, uh, anticipated risk in mm-hmm. our portfolio. There's too much uncertainty, regulation, um, you know, fraud, uh, the technology that uh, we we won't enter that game before it's much more mature. That's always been somehow our philosophy. So maybe we're uh, you know we're too shy in a sense, and we're too prudent. But uh, I think it it's it's also our role to manage tail risk. And when we're pretty confident, we've identified tail risk, which usually is extremely hard to identify, by the way. But in the mm-hmm. case of cryptos. I think there's a huge tail risk, which nobody can say it's a black swan. And, um, and and I think it's reasonable not to be exposed to that kind of risk. We've had different types of uh, markets, um, turbulence and volatility. This autumn, the UK had its own economic crisis. Do you think we're going to see more bond market battles like that next year elsewhere? Or is that just a particular situation about UK mismanagement? Well, I think there's a big part of that um, for sure, but it doesn't mean that the rest of the world is insulated against such uh, uh, hiccups. You know, the only thing I can say for sure is that there's going to be a lot of volatility ahead. But um, I, I'm I, I, I'm not buying the idea that the whole world will be suffering like the UK next year because. Um, Europe, for example, has, has still a lot at its disposal to take measures it, it's never taken. Like, you know, Europe borrowing as, a, as an entity is still an option that's never been used. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Okay, moving on from market themes, you've built your career in money management on top of your academic career as a physicist. Now, which is most important to you? Well, you know, I don't think I'm a physicist anymore uh, because I'm I'm only doing physics uh, very occasionally these days. I'm mm. I'm still an academic in heart, uh, but I'm mostly working when I'm not directly working on on strategies and managing the company on themes that are related to financial markets and. And, and macroeconomic problems or microeconomic problems. So, of course, my approach to these problems is inspired and helped by my background in physics. But um, I wouldn't say that I'm a physicist in the traditional sense. Although, you know, physicists nowadays do all sorts of things and accept people doing biology, economics, or whatever as physicists. So it's it's a little, the, the line is, is blurred. 
But um, I would say that for me, the kind of miracle uh, that I've been uh, very happy to live in my life is that there's a, a very strong convergence between academic research and applied research in the context of CFM. And so it's fantastic to think that by doing, by trying to understand how the, the financial world or the economic world uh, behaves and functions, uh, inspires so much of what we're also doing as an investment fund. So there's mm -hmm. that aspect. And the other aspect, which is equally important in a sense, is the fact that this academic activity, the, the fact of uh, teaching, the fact of um, having PhD students and postdocs in the, in the company and having very strong interactions with um, academic institutions means that uh, we are um, a magnet for uh, new talents. Uh, and uh, yeah. we've been able um, for a long time, but, but even in the recent years where people have spoken about, you know, great res resignation and difficulty to attract talents and so on, we've actually been uh, extremely successful in attracting extremely bright people from all over the world. So uh, I think that part of my commitment in trying to keep uh, high-level academic activity is, well, I know it's maybe um, pretentious to say that, but I, 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 mm. I'm, I'm striving to, to, to maintain this excellence requirement because I think that's, that's a nice way to attract the kind of profile that we need at CFM. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions at that intersection between um, the financial world and the academic world. Um, so starting with central banks, you've observed some inertia, I guess, in terms of their modelling. And why didn't they see inflation coming this crisis or the financial crisis of 2008? Yeah, that was the Queen's question, wasn't it? Um, well, you know, I mean, I've been ranting uh, about this for 30 years now. I think that there's there are sacred cows in uh, financial mathematics or academic economics uh, that focus on, on, on models and ideas that are beautiful from a conceptual point of view, but uh, ill-equipped to deal with the real world. So... This is true, you know, about the Black-Scholes theory for option markets, for example, which was actually, you know, as an anecdote, uh, the reason why I, I got involved in, in finance and, and why uh, I, I got involved with CFM to start with. And coming back to your question, the idea that, you know, we can model macroeconomics in terms of, you know, rational agents and equilibrium models, that is, models where supply is equal to demand by the virtue of price adapting uh, such that uh, this equality, this equilibrium is reached kind of instantaneously. And there's no question to ask about how long does it take to reach equilibrium? Uh, what if equilibrium is not reached and so on? So mm -hmm. it gives, of course, a mathematical framework that's very convenient to work with. Uh, but that totally fails, in my opinion, to uh capture events like well like the 1987 crisis in the case of black shoals uh 
1987 crash, uh, more precisely, uh, the 2008 crisis, the, the, the current inflation uh, bouts, and, and so on. And so I think that the idea that central banks are using models that do not cover the whole spectrum of possibilities in terms of why inflation can appear um, is, is a problem. Am I right in thinking, you know, you see a need for um, different underlying assumptions and also, and, and this might relate to your interest in uh, radical complexity theory, maybe a, a little bit more leeway for doubt and, and different outcomes rather than an exact answer, an exact prediction being made, which is incredibly low probability of being correct. Yes. Maybe a, a a bit a a bit more um a bit more leeway and a, a range of likely outcomes. Yes, no, I think it's extremely true what you say, and I've been trying to advocate this point of view for a while now. I think that you know it would already be extremely good in a complex system situation to be able to list the possible outcomes, not even with probabilities attached to that to these outcomes. This is mm-hmm. already a step that's much harder, especially when these probabilities are low and there's no way to to compute them. Um, but just have a list of things that can happen, that can reasonably happen, not reasonably in sense of uh, probabilities, but in sense of plausibility in terms of, you know, if you understand how the system works, then you should be able to work out that if this happens, then you know, there's a chain of causality that make this other thing happening too, or can make this other thing happen. And I think this this kind of tree of possibilities um, and having a tool to generate scenarios, um, even if you don't have real probabilities attached to these scenarios, is a fantastic way to uh, spur your imagination and, and challenge the, the view of the world. So coming back to inflation, uh, it turns out that we have a, a toy model, a toy agent-based model that we don't claim to be you know, final nor uh, very trustworthy. It's, it's a proof of concept, as I said. But at least within this trust, proof of concept model, we clearly saw in June 2020 that inflation was a possibility after COVID. And, and I think that at this point, it was really helpful for us because we started thinking, well, you know, this can really happen. And we have a channel here that we hadn't thought about. And that clearly is a possibility for inflation to, to, to appear. And so for me, a good model, you know, is something that generates scenario that you haven't thought about. And it's also a tool that allows you to enter a kind of dialogue between yourself and your model. And, you know, do kind of a, as if uh, kind of questions, you know, not as if, um, what if, sorry. Uh, so what if this, well, then that's, and oh, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of, about this. So why does it happen? Why in this model do I get inflation after COVID? Oh, yes. Well, this, uh, this can indeed be uh, relevant in practice. So maybe we should pay attention to this. So you see, it's not a question of probabilities, even, uh, you know, let alone uh, deterministic or uh, absolute predict- predictions, but just 
open your mind to what can happen is, uh, I think, very much needed. I like to quote Keynes on that, who, who said, you know, it's, it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. And I, I, I indeed think that many of these classical models try to come up with precise numbers. But as you said, these precise numbers have very low probability to be right anyway. And there are signs of um, progress in, in central banking circles. Um, to throw another quote in there, even Jerome Powell said this summer he's probably realised how little they actually understand inflation, which is quite an admission by the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. One one quick point, you know, it's all very well having a, a tree of possibilities, but I guess a critique could be, you know, central bankers need to set interest rates, traders need to make investment decisions, they need a bit more precise guidance to make those decisions. Yes, but my point of view on that is that it's worse to uh, have a pretense of knowledge than to accept Mm. that you don't know what you're talking about. Because accept that you really don't know means that you're going to be more careful and more thoughtful about what you're trying to do rather than to have you know, it's it's the lamppost uh, syndrome. Uh, it's if you, if you if you only look for your keys under the lamppost, then uh, it's not going to work. So if the keys are elsewhere, you better know it, even if it's dark out there. One other academic area you've touched on relates to volatility. Do you think that has anything to do with the fundamentals or do you see it more being about prior price trends? So as you as you know, this is a long story. I mean, it was unearthed by um, Rob Schiller in the early 80s that uh, stock market volatility is much too high to be explained by fundamentals. So this uh, excess volatility puzzle, as it's called, it has been around for many years and what's interesting is that from more microstructure studies you understand better and better where volatility comes from and and you understand that it's actually what people do that creates volatility independent of whether fundamental information is involved and mm-hmm. one of the reason people do things is because they look at prices and so we see uh, over and over again, you know, there are many models trying to capture this feedback between past price changes and what people do, and therefore how future volatility is going to behave. That point, these studies all point to the fact that a very large fraction of realized volatility is due to feedback mechanisms. It's due to really prices feeding back on themselves and in particular, price trends and price volatility in the past feeding back onto future volatility. So, yes, I think that now we can be pretty confident that, you know, maybe 80 to 90 percent, maybe even more, but at least 80 to 90 percent of volatility is due to these feedback mechanisms. And I think actually what's interesting and in coming back to Schiller is that this is ballpark the same order of magnitude of difference between fundamental and realized volatility that Schiller was already seeing back in the early 80s. What was it about the 1987 crisis that made you decide to 
go into fi- a financial career? So as you know, the Black Scholes theory of option pricing is based on the idea that fluctuations are Gaussian. There's no fat tails, there's no crashes, there's no large events. Everything is smooth and continuous. And people in the 80s believed so much in the Black Scholes uh, uh, dogma uh, that, um, so of course the story is a little long to explain, but um, part of the reason the 1987 crash was so intense was because of the feedback of the Black Scholes Delta hedging strategy onto markets. This is you know, related to what I just said, that the, what people do for whatever reason they do, uh, they do it, is, is going to impact prices and create volatility. So, you know, you have a theory that is based on the absence of crashes and it's used by the financial industry creates these very crashes. So for me, it was a, a, an amazing example of how uh, using the wrong model can misbehave. Um, and, and in parallel to this, my, my work in physics was about fat tails, about, you know, large events, extreme events. And so for me, it was a a kind of natural, um, coincidence in a sense to, 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 uh, to try to apply what I knew about uh, fat tails, about, uh, uh, these non-Gaussian distributions and ways to deal with them uh, and apply them to, to financial markets. So that was my uh, inroad into option pricing beyond Black Scholes and the creation of CFM. Yeah, uh, and is is that a is that a does that touch on a big difference? Do you think between the worlds of economics and physics in terms of how how those branches you know reach? conclusions and and build up bodies of research because it it seems that you know economic models hold sway but there should be a lot more room for maybe a more physics-led approach very much so i think that physicists in their training you know they go to the lab they really experiment They, they they mix things together they shake and they see what happens and i think this creates a kind of carnal relation between your subject, the thing that you're thinking about and the way you think about it. And, and I think it's really very important to have this, this relation between you and what you try to model. And I think this is very much missing in economics curriculums. On the other hand, um, things are changing. When I started finance 30 years ago, um, there was not a lot of data available. And I think that this is really the reason why, first of all, I... Um, started doing what I've done, which is the the, the progressive uh, emergence of uh, available data. But it's also the case now where we are completely overwhelmed by data sources that economists pay much more um, attention to to the real world. And they have to because uh, even students are asking for more contact with the real world, more hypotheses that can be back-tested that can be backed by empirical evidence. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very optimistic on the fact that progressively there will be a convergence between uh, the kind of data-driven uh, or observation-driven science that physicists are 
um, trained uh, to, to do and the the axiomatic the traditional axiomatic way economists set up their models so um you know in, in 10 years i think things will have changed considerably mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well thank you so much for joining me on afi today jean philippe thank you so much thank you to jean philippe you can read my five takeaways from the interview now on alternativefundinsight.com if you have friends or colleagues in the industry who would enjoy the podcast or AFI analysis, please let them know about it. As ever, all feedback is appreciated. Contact me at will at alternativefundinsight.com. That's it for now. See you next time. <laughs>